Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. I'll begin looking in Hebrews chapter number 8. This, uh, this section of the book of Hebrews is actually the point that marks the real shift and this epistle to the Hebrews from a theme of Christ being better than and begins to focus on the contrast in shadow and substance. What the author will start to, and he, he kind of started to lay some groundwork in chapter number 7, but chapter number 8, really through chapter number 9, and even into chapter number 10, we see this, this idea of shadows and substances. And hopefully we'll be able to bring some of that out as we unpack the verses in this chapter this evening. And we're looking specifically at verse 1 down through verse number 6. Um, this section of the book of Hebrews is kind of imperative that we understand some things about the Old Testament. Uh, there was an author, his name's John Bright. He said that this part of the book of Hebrews can be best explained as a two-act play. And he's talking about the Bible as a whole, um, which kind of called my mind to something when I was a kid. So I know I talk about a lot about there being a generation gap sometimes when I'm talking to people between me being in my 30s and other people being in their 50s and 60s. There's a generation gap where they'll talk about some things that I don't necessarily grasp hold of. And there's probably that happens vice versa. Like just like my kids talk about things and I don't know what in the world they're talking about. So I'm going to try and connect the two tonight. Um, everybody remembers VHSs, I assume. There was a tape about this big. You plugged it. My kids won't remember. But you plugged it in. It went in. It did this little thing and it played a tape. The issue was there are movies that were too long to put on one VHS. One of the ones that came to mind that I remember from probably being about Reese's age was The Sound of Music. There was a tape one and a tape two. So in the, in the tape cabinet, the, the thing was like this thick, and you had tape one and tape two or scene one and scene two. Now, here was the issue with those two tapes. At the middle of the second tape, it, was, it, said, it literally said intermission. It was the second act of the play, the second act of the movie. The problem was if you had watched the first tape only, you would leave being really confused about what had happened to this family. On the opposite side of that, if you only watched the second tape, while you would find out some good things and find out some, some, some I guess, that they didn't die. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. They didn't die. But you would kind of be left in the dark on how any of this connected to what was going on. I mean, who is this family? Why are they running over the mountains for their lives? What in the world is going on here? And it's kind of that way with Scripture, especially when we're looking into the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is a very Old Testament, New Testament book. And if we don't understand specific aspects of the Old Testament, or scene one, or act one, or VHS one, then we're not going to be able to understand specific aspects that's talked about in the book of Hebrews. 
And hopefully we'll be able to, to kind of verse in some of that. There was something that was said by Alistair Begg, and I thought it was good. And he said that it would do well for everyone that was listening to him to write these things down. So I wrote them down. He said, in the Old Testament, we see Jesus predicted. In the Gospels, we see Jesus revealed. In the Acts, we see Jesus preached. In the epistles, including Hebrews, we see Jesus explained. And in the Revelation, we see Jesus expected. So we have this explanation of Christ in the book of Hebrews. And again, this being one of the most Old Testament, New Testament books, we need to understand some aspects about the Old Testament. In context, historically what was going on here is there was this group of people, and we, if you remember through some of what we have covered so far, and you even know some of the things that are going to be upcoming, what you're going to see is that there's a group of people that the author is worried about turning back and going back to what they did before. They're going back to the organized set. We know what's going to happen. We know what we're going here for. We know what we're doing. They were going back to that instead of, instead of following who the author was telling them to follow. Again, the illustration was given that it was like a bunch of people were almost in a parade. And if you're anything like me, and my wife can attest to this, if you're going somewhere and there's a lot of people, sometimes you just, when you don't know really where you're going, you just pick out the group of people that look like they know where they're going and you follow them. This might be a big group of people, but you say, okay, these guys look like they know what they're talking about. They look like they know what we're go- where they're going, so we're going to follow behind them. And what was happening with some of these Hebrew people, specifically talked about in the text in the book of Hebrews, is they were caught up in this crowd of people that were following a specific direction that they sounded like they knew what they're talking about, but they started looking around and wondering if anybody was actually leading this group. Or if they'd all just started walking and coming together and following each other. And what the author does in this text specifically, he says, I know that you've started following a new teaching, a new group of people. And I know some of you are wondering, is there anybody leading this group? And the author is saying to them, look, I've been to the front. I know the guy who's leading it. You're okay. Just keep following him. So as we get into the text this evening, we should probably read the text. Verse number one says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. So it's everything that we've said. Let me wrap it up for you. If you didn't get it, let me put it to you again. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were of on earth, He should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and the shadow 
of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see he that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which also also was established upon better promises. So as we begin to look at this text, I want to look at a minister of a better sanctuary and the mediator of a better covenant. And those are in the bulletin if you need them. So first of all, we see in verses 1 through verse number 5, the author points us to a minister of a better covenant. And as we read there in verse number 1, he said, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He said, everything that I've said to you up to this point, this is what I was getting at. If you're like me and you end up having long-winded explanations, sometimes you get towards the end and you want to make sure everybody's still following you. So you're saying, everything that I said, this is my point. This is what I was getting at. Draw it all up, put a bow on it. The author's saying, everything that I've said before, this is the reason that I was saying all of these things. Well, so what's the point of the author? Well, the point there is in verse number one and verse number two. He says that the point of everything that he has said is so that those who are reading this epistle know that we have such a high priest. He's saying the high priest that we have is superior. He's way better. And how do we know that? Because we just got done looking in chapter number seven where he tells us that this priest is after the order of Melchizedek. This priest is not an earthly priest. He's not a priest that had to be born in a specific group of Levites. He had to have a specific father who had to give up his priesthood when he turned about 50 years old. We have a different priest. We have a better high priest. So he said, we have such a high priest, the one that I've been talking about. Number two, he says that this priest is now set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So not only is this priest superior, but just like Melchizedek, this priest is kingly. This is a king priest. Just like it says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, this priest is also a king. He's better than the priest that you had. He's better than those priests that you have been looking to for years and years and years. And not only that, he's better than the kings that you've been looking to for years and years and years. Verse number two, he begins and he tells us that he's not only a superior priest, and that he's a king who has literally taken seat at the right hand of the throne, but that he is a minister of the sanctuary. And what the author begins to do in verse number two, down through verse number five, is he starts to contrast the covenants. So he says, going down to everything that I've said, I've showed you that Jesus is better than the angels. I've showed you that Jesus is better than the prophets. I've showed you that Jesus is better than the kings that you've had. I've showed you that Jesus is better than Moses. He's gone down to the list of everybody that they would have looked to and shown them that Jesus is better. 
So now he's going to go to the base and contrast the systems behind which these people had been serving. All of these priests, all of these prophets, all of these people that he's talked about were all part of a system, a covenant. So he's going to contrast the old covenant and the new covenant. And some of this we'll even get to as we continue down through chapter number 8. But he begins to lay the groundwork for this contrast here in the beginning of the chapter. So what does he contrast? Specifically, he's contrasting a few different things. He says that we have this minister of a sanctuary and of a true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And what he's doing here is he's basically giving the, the idea that the tabernacle that they had in the wilderness and the temple that was built by model of the tabernacle were not the real thing. They were substitute. He literally says that they were a shadow of things to come. He's not saying that it was a fake or it was a fraud. He's saying it was a substitute. It's something that I put in the place of until the real substance came. You know, we, we think about sugar. It's like, well, we can't have real sugar, so we're going to substitute it with something else. It's not fake sugar, per se. It still sweetens, but it's not actual sugar. More specifically, a shadow can let you know where something is at. If I'm walking through the house at night and the moon is shining through the window, I may see the shadow of the couch, and it can let me know not to trip over the couch. And in a sense, these pieces weren't the true tabernacle or the true sanctuary. Rather, they were shadows of what was to come. And we'll get into that as we go on through these verses. Verse number three. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So he said, you're used to all of this. You're used to these high priests being ordained to offer sacrifice, so this guy better have something to offer. And he does. Verse number three, he contrasts the sacrifices. You see, what we get the misconception of and what the author is alluding to here when he says that this man must have somewhat to offer is that he had to be the substance to which the shadows point to. What we often do, at least what I often do, is we will look at the scriptures and we will say, well, in the Old Testament, they offered a spotless lamb. So Jesus meets that requirement because he is a spotless lamb. But the problem is we flipped it. You see, the spotless lamb met the requirement because it was pointing us to Jesus who was the spotless lamb. Jesus didn't have to fulfill these boxes of being a spotless lamb or all of these aspects of, of tabernacle worship because all of those pointed to him. That's why those things had to be correct. You know, you look at it and you wonder, well, why in the world did God kill two guys for getting fired from the wrong place? Because that didn't match the substance. If you have a distorted shadow, then whenever you get to what the actual substance was, you're going to be like, that looks nothing like the shadow. The shadow is all that these people had. So God's ensuring that the shadow stayed in this correct form. Why did God kill somebody for touching the, mur- the, the Ark of the Covenant? Because that was a shadow of what was to come. 
If he would have allowed it to be done in the way that it wasn't supposed to be done, then it would have skewed all of the rest of what we see in Christ. All of these pictures, all of these shadows that point us to Christ, the reason that they're there is because the shadows needed to point us to the substance. And if the shadow didn't point you to the substance, then the shadow had no purpose. Even farther than that, if the shadow pointed you to the wrong substance, the shadow became dangerous. And that's the reason that you even see God bringing people back in the book of Hosea and in the book of Psalms where he says it wasn't about the blood of the goats and the bulls. You've gotten away from the shadow and in turn it's going to pull you away from the substance. So he's contrasting the sacrifices. He says that Christ was the spotless lamb. That's what all of these spotless lambs were a picture of. Christ was the true tabernacle. That's what all of these worship, allied aspects were a picture of. Everything that was done, leading us into verse number four, everything that was done in the tabernacle was pointing us to the substance, which was Christ. Verse number four, he said, For if he were on earth, he should have not been a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. He said he didn't come to be part of the shadow because he was the substance of those shadows. When the priest would go in with the bells around his feet to offer sacrifice, it was pointing to what Christ would do. Christ didn't do what he did because it lined up with what happened, but they did what they did because God said this is the, this is the picture of the truth. This is the substitute until he comes, until the fullness of time has come for the real thing. See, this real thing, this real priest, this true priest, his service, his ministry was not bound by Levitical systems. Those Levitical systems were bound to him. He wasn't bound by being born in a specific people group. Those specific people groups pointed to him. And he goes and he continues on. He says in verse number five, who also serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. He legitimately says all of these things were examples and shadows of the real thing. As Moses was admonished of God when he was able about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou maketh all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. All of those earthly things were pointing us to the true substance. And that's what the author is trying to point out to these Hebrew people. He's like, I know you want to go back to these things because these things make sense to you. I know you want to go back to the routine and the form because that's what you're used to. But all of those things were there to serve a substitute, to serve as a shadow, to serve as what was given until the fullness of time has come. And all those shadows, all those substitutes, all those earthly things have pointed you to the real thing. And now that the real thing has come, you don't need the shadows anymore. You don't need the substitutes anymore. That's why Jesus came in and he makes those statements that he didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law. Because what he's literally doing 
is he is showing himself as the substance, as the real thing to all the shadows in the Old Testament. So as we get into verse number six, and this is where, if you want to call it the, 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 I don't know if it's a sucker punch is the right way to say it. I know my, my wife, his, her, her dad will kind of do this, and even in conversations, he'll talk about something over here to get you distracted, and then he'll come in for the, for the kill with his argument. That's, what he, that's kind of the way that his mind operates. And in a sense, the author has built up these contrasts, and he's really going to drive that home in verse number six. So what does he say? He says, but now, he says, forget all of this stuff. I've explained to you why Christ was the better, why Christ is the substance, why you don't need the shadows, why they were all pointing to him. But now he hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And again, he's laying the groundwork for what he's going to continue to say throughout this chapter. So he's pointed out how he's a minister of a better covenant. So he's, he's pointing out how he, he, he's bringing this better thing in. How he, he is the better thing. How he is the substance. But the other turns and points us to a mediator of a better covenant. So we have the one who's ministering the better covenant. Who's bringing it in. Who is administering it. Who's serving it to you. But not only he's doing that, he's mediating it. He's going in between. He's the one that connects all this together. Verse number six, we see that this mediator has a better ministry. He's obtained a more excellent ministry is what the text says. So if we kind of look back to try to connect scene one with scene two, Tape one, tape two, however we want to think about it. If we look back to connect these things, now that we've kind of contrasted them, if we look back to connect these things, we can understand what the author's driving us to. The ministry of the high priest was to go before God. That was his ministry. His whole purpose was to go before God for the people. In the Old Testament, that's the only thing, that's his only purpose. That's his only, his only, his only, th- his only purpose in life was to go before God. The problem was there was no real assurance in what he was doing. That's one of the reasons that the Hebrews seemingly continued to stray over and over and over and over because there was no assurance, no really firm assurance in what they had. What they had was a guy who went behind a veil that they didn't see. They didn't know what was really back there. They didn't see what he was doing when he went back there. All they had was the ring of some bells. And then he came back out and he would take the blood that he had put on the mercy seat and he would sling it upon the crowd as a covenant, as a sign that everything had been done. But when they left, what was to assure them that he had done everything right? What was to assure them that their sins had really been atoned for? And the author will kind of get into that part of that aspect of everything in around chapter 11. But there was no real assurance in that ministry. See, with this new mediator, he has a more excellent ministry. He doesn't just go before God. He is God. There's assurance in what was being done. Even with the prophets, the, the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament 
was to hear from God and to convey that to other people. So in one, you have somebody who's doing it for you, who's going before God for you and offering things to God for you. And on the other side, you have this ministry of guys who are hearing from God and telling you what God has said. The problem with that was there was no real experiential knowledge. Yeah, he could tell you what God said, just like the one guy... The one older prophet told the younger prophet, God said it's okay if you stay, even though the younger prophet, God had told not to stay. The other prophet said, no, God said it's fine if you stay. So he did, and what happens? He leaves, and he gets eaten by a lion. There was no real experiential knowledge of what was being said. You just kind of took the guy's word for it. That's the reason if you read through the Old Testament, you have all these false prophets who say all these false things, and you don't really know who to believe. But the difference with this prophet is he brings a real experiential knowledge to to these people. Not only is he going before God as God, but he's bringing the word of God because he is God in a real experiential way. The best way I know how to to explain this, and I'll probably use Miss Claudette for a little bit of an example. And y'all tell me if I'm wrong. And obviously this example is going to apply to whomever in whatever situation. But if I were to go over to the Beaver household tonight with my kids, my assumption is somewhere in the house there is a picture of Mr. Purvis. Somewhere. Okay. So my kids come in, and they see the picture, and they come and they ask me, say, Dad, who is that? Well, I know who it is because I've seen this picture before, but I, have ne- I never actually met Mr. Purvis. Never. I don't have that experiential knowledge. In a sense, that's what was happening with these Old Testament, and Old Testament, we'll call them Old Testament, with these Hebrew people. They had guys who were telling them these things that they knew, but they had no experience with. So their fathers were saying, yes, we, yes, kids, we go to the tabernacle and we offer these sacrifices. And this is what the priest does. They were telling their kids these things, but they had no real experiential, they had no real experience with this. They saw it, but the knowledge wasn't real. It was a substitute. Well, going back to that scenario, if my kids were then to leave me and go ask Miss Claudette, who is this? She could tell them who that was because she has real experiential knowledge of Mr. Purvis. She could tell him who he was and what he did and stories about when the kids were growing up. She could tell him all of these things because she knew that. So they, they had these priests and they had these prophets and they were like, go, okay, tell us about all this stuff. Why are we making these sacrifices? What did you really do when you went behind the veil? But the problem was, it was still just a picture. Here's what the difference would be. Is if my kids were there and Mr. Purvis walked into the room, we could take the picture down because we don't need the picture anymore. We don't need the stories anymore. We don't need to find somebody who has that 
experiential knowledge of it because we've got the real thing. That's what the author is trying to convey to them. He's saying, take the pictures down. You don't need those anymore. You've been given the real thing. You can experience the real thing. You don't have to go out of this with no assurance on whether or not your sins are really forgiven because you can experience the real forgiveness of your sin. You don't have to wonder if the guy who told you what God said is right or wrong because you have been given the ministry of the Holy Spirit to tell you which is right and which is wrong. What does the book of 1 John say again and again and again? Watch out because there's going to be antichrists that come and they're going to tell you these different things. But the way that you're going to know if it's true or not is if they say that Jesus came and died, that Jesus was born in the flesh, if they speak right of Jesus... They're true. Yes. You don't have to wonder what somebody's telling you because you've got the real thing now. He he brought in a better ministry. That's what the author says. He hath obtained a more excellent ministry. This is way better than what you had before. Not only that, he brings in a better covenant. What does the text say? By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Our mediator, and this is the difference, our mediator doesn't exist to go into this mysterious holy of holies for us and to put blood on a mercy seat for us, whether this covenant, this mediator calls us in, not to just a box with a mercy seat, but literally calls us into the throne of grace. Yes. So what the, that's what the author has said. He says that we can go with boldness before the throne of grace because our mediator is there calling us to him. You don't have to rely on somebody doing it for you because you have got the mediator to come and do it himself. And he calls you in. This is a better covenant. Any way that you slice it, it's better than the last one. You can have... A guy who does it for you, you don't really know if he's telling you the truth. A guy who tells you what God said, and you don't really know if he's telling you the truth. Or you can have the God-man who has done it for you, and you can be assured he's telling you the truth because the book of James tells us he cannot lie. And you've got the God-man who is telling you what God has said because he is God. And you can get the word straight from him. It's better no matter what way you look at it. And this better covenant, the text tells us, is established upon a better promise. And what's he talking about there? I mean, we, we kind of can grasp the ministry, kind of cover the covenant. What's the, what's the better promise? Go back to the Old Testament again. We'll do that a lot. <laughs> Specific in the book of Hebrews. What were they told? Took him up on a mountain, said, you do this, you keep all these laws, and I will give you the land that I promised to your father Abraham. I will give you these things. You do well, you keep the law, you'll likely prosper. You do well, you keep the law, you probably have a long life. 
This is a good promise. You don't make stupid choices. You don't win stupid prizes. I mean, it was a good promise. The Bible tells us that this better covenant of whom had a better mediator is established on a better promise. And what's the promise we find in the New Testament? What's the promise that Jesus was teaching? What's the promise that he gave Nicodemus, who knew the law, who knew all of these things, were, was, was intricately connected to all of these things? He said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes on me, that was the promise. It wasn't do this and you will live well. It was believe on me and you will live in me and with me. Again, way better promise. Not just do good and things will go good for you. But believe, and you'll be connected to this mediator. You'll be connected to the substance. Don't just follow the shadows. You are literally connected to the substance. It's not a physical, conditional promise. It's a spiritual, unconditional promise. The author in the book of Hebrews He's doing everything that he can to ensure that these Hebrew people understand that Jesus is better. Not just that he's better than what you've seen. Not just that he's better than these examples that you've been given. But he's literally bringing in a whole better system. And all of those aspects that you're missing, all of those things that are drawing you back, all of those, we go here and we wash here and we bring this here and this is sacrificed here and this is done like this. All of that, all of that familiarity, this, this calling back to you saying, come back, come back. The author's saying, don't go back. Don't draw back. There's nothing back there for you. There's nothing there. You've been given the real thing. And even farther than that, all of those things that are pointing you in a specific direction, all those things that you're familiar with, those were literally shadows of what you've been given. Don't leave the substance to go back to the shadows. You might be familiar with the shadows, but the substance is way better. You've lived in the dark for a long time. There's no reason to go back to the dark just because you were familiar with it. You've been given something better. It's what the author calls us to do. When we begin to look around at the things that we were familiar with, for most of us, it's typically sin. Well, we were familiar with this. We're familiar with reacting this way. We're familiar with treating people this way. We're familiar with, with doing these things. Whether believer or unbeliever, we're familiar with these things. But if the substance is way better than the shadows, 
How much more better is it than the things that weren't even the shadows? How much more better is Christ than a sinful nature? Than sin that only leads you to destruction and despair. If the author is calling to these people and saying he's better than the good things, well, surely he's better than the bad things. And he will. He'll, he'll go and add throughout this chapter to really draw the lines of this covenant, to really explain this new system. Before any of that's done, the author is calling these Hebrew people, and by extension, because we have an inspired word of God, he's calling us not to get caught up in all the shadows, not to get caught up in all the other things, but to grab hold to Christ because he is a better minister. He's brought us something better. And he's a better mediator. He's doing it all better. So don't look back. Don't draw back. Don't run back. Don't forsake. These are all words that we'll see as we continue through these chapters. But grab hold of Christ. That's literally what preaching the gospel is. It's looking ourselves and our sinfulness in the face and running and casting ourselves on Christ. It's the reason why we do what we do. We're sinners. Christ isn't. We failed. Christ didn't. It's the reason we do what we do because we look at our sin and we look at our Savior. And if we remind ourselves of that again and again and again, and that's what will be following. That's what will change us. That's what will begin to, to mold us into the people that God has called to himself. Let's pray.